Hello, everyone, and welcome to the long-awaited 11th episode of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and I am joined here in my own apartment by my former graduate school classmate at the University of Houston, Mr. Mike Thatcher. How you doing, Mike? Good. How you doing? Good. Good. I'm excited. It's been quite a long time since I've been able to create one of these as you and a couple others know my laptop was unfortunately stolen out of my old apartment yeah i have since moved and today i spent money that i do not have on a macbook pro that i'm very excited to use so mike let's dive right into a little bit about you tell us some things about yourself uh well as you said we were classmates together at the university of houston we graduated in what 2014 Mm -hmm. uh since then i have been working Uh, i worked with uh, texas shakes utah shakes i did two national tours with uh big league productions uh guys and dolls and a christmas story um and i'm getting ready to do uh titan theater company's julius caesar starting rehearsals in two days that is very exciting. Directed by uh, the head of our program. Mr. Jack Young. That's right. <laughs> the man who created us both. And <laughs> now can never destroy us. That's right, I hope. <laughs> um, so Mike said right before we got on the air that if we don't slap each other during this, he's going to be disappointed. And, well, I wouldn't want to disappoint Mike. So we'll, we will find a reason to... Conflict will arise. Yes. Good. Great. <laughs> Um, so in the news, uh, recently, it is the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death this year. April 23rd, I believe. Um, something like that. Is that his death or his birth? Both. Yeah. Really? Shakespeare was born and died on the same day. I did not know that. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, one of his greatest actors was born the day after that. Really? Was that... Me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I feel that slap coming on. <laughs> Um, so, in celebration of the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, many theater companies or renowned theater cities, I should say, around the world are doing certain things to celebrate. Um, one of the most notable uh, cities to be doing something is Chicago, right? And at the top of the list, I think, the most exciting is that uh, Chicago Shakespeare Festival, or Chicago Shakespeare Theater, mm-hmm. I should say, thank goodness Mike just pulled it up on his computer and I could read and correct myself, has, or is going to do a six-play, I don't know, what would you call it, a cycle? Uh, cy- yeah, I guess that's the best way to put it. Yeah, so they're basically condensing three, or six history plays into two performances, right? Um, and... A little bit controversially, they're starting with Edward III, right? So the order is Edward III, Henry V, and Henry VI Part One in their first play, which is called Tug of War, Foreign Fire. Um, and if you're in Chicago, the dates are May 11th to June 12th, 2016. And then after that, Tug of War, Civil Strife will play, um, and that will have Henry VI Parts Two and Three and Richard III, and that will perform September 14th through October 9th at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater in 2016. So, the first thing I want to talk about is, what do you think, Mike, about the choice to use Edward III as the opening play in the cycle, and then skip, I think, what we decided was four kings after that, or three kings after that, straight to Henry V? Two. Two. Yeah, I didn't know know that he is allegedly uh, an author of Edward III. I didn't know that until we were just talking right before we started this. But it's interesting, yeah, that they go from Edward III, which possibly was written by Shakespeare, skips over Richard II, Henry IV Part One, and Henry IV Part Two, to go right into Henry V. Now, personally, I love Richard II and Henry IV Part One and Henry IV Part Two, But those two plays, Richard II into Henry IV Part One, is like my favorite two successive plays they're amazing and i'm very curious as to why they're skipping those two well and especially because i mean so edward the third i guess according to a wikipedia article that i was reading i i'm gonna cut out the part where i reference wikipedia <laughs> uh, and edward the uh, third according to an article i was reading recently has gained traction in shakespeare scholarly circles 
in recent years um, as perhaps being partly written by Shakespeare. Um, but it's not confirmed that it is written by Shakespeare. And even if it is, it is believed to have at least one other playwright mm -hmm. um, on its front cover, if you will. So the fact that they choose to start with Edward III rather than even Richard II is, yeah. is curious to me. Yeah, me too. Um, but should be a fascinating, fascinating set of productions. Uh, Chicago Shakespeare Theater is very reputable. Um, the plays are adapted and directed by Barbara Gaines, uh, the artistic director at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. So go see Tug of War, Foreign Fire, and Tug of War, Civil Strife if you're in the Chicago area um, between, I guess, May and September. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, October. 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 Right. Yeah. Cool. Um, so second interesting thing Chicago is doing, and I was talking to Mike a little bit about this before the podcast, apparently Chicago chefs are being challenged to create dishes inspired by Shakespeare's plays. I will not be eating any Timon of Athens-inspired dishes. <laughs> um, All I keep thinking of is Toby Belch saying a curse of these pickled herring. <laughs> what they're going to do with that, I don't know. It's going to be so fascinating to see how many people turn out for this type of event and really what kind of crowd it brings to the restaurant. I mean, you would think that this would be great for their business because it's going to bring in an influx of theater people, right? Totally. I don't know. What else do you think about this? Is this good for Shakespeare? Is this weird for Shakespeare? No, I think any awareness towards Shakespeare is, is wonderful. And this is <laughs> such a unique idea. It just reminds me of like Top Chef or Chopped or anything like that. Okay, now chefs, you have to go through Shakespeare's <laughs> text and pick out your ingredients that you will now use to bring light to Shakespeare. I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's kind of cool. I wish I would be in Chicago so I could uh, try some stuff out. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that any publicity for Shakespeare is good publicity. And I think this is a great way to not only get the Shakespeare community into the restaurant community, but vice versa, you know, um, draw attention to the culinary community to Shakespeare's plays with the Chicago theater, uh, Chicago Shakespeare theater adaptations going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. Maybe it'll bring crowds into those productions. Yeah, totally. So, it's, yeah, I think vice versa will go both ways. Cross marketing. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Boom. <laughs> um, one thing that New York City is doing, which I find particularly exciting, is that Julie Taymor, um, who is most well known for directing The Lion King and uh, initially directing part of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, uh, and a really awesome production of Twelfth Night, many, many other things, and Anne Bogart, who is the, I guess, artistic director or creative leader or whatever you call it, of City Company, um, they will be conversing uh, at the, I believe, the New York Public Library, I, I would have to fact check that later, uh, about bringing Shakespeare to the stage and I guess how to do it. So that should be pretty exciting. What do you think about this, Mike? Well, what exactly do they want to bring? Different productions, different... Uh, what exactly are they trying to bring? Well, my understanding was that it's a, a sort of, not tutorial, but talk back about how they bring Shakespearean productions oh, to the stage, oh, specifically okay. how to okay. build a Shakespeare play. Sure. Well, I, I think that's fantastic. I mean, there are so many different ways to do it. Some productions go way over the top with technical things, and mm -hmm. others just use a bare stage with some curtains and some props. And both ways are right. There's no wrong way to do Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, I take that back, actually. There are definitely <laughs> plenty of wrong ways to do Shakespeare, but... Um, <laughs> No, I, I think it's great. And, uh, and to hear these two uh, prestigious women talk about bringing shakes to the stage, I think that's fantastic. And I think that, now that you pointed that out, I think that's a really cool thing to notice is that both of these are phenomenal, renowned female directors yes. that are being featured in a really big event in the Shakespeare community. So win for women there, I think. Win for all of us, really, yeah, if totally. you think about it. Um, but yeah, and Julie Taymor and Anne Bogart have such vastly different directing styles that it'll be interesting to see how they both collaborate on something like this. Totally. Well, time to dive into today's play. Um, Mike's favorite. Well, <laughs> maybe not favorite play, but definitely one that Mike has done the most. I've done it three times in the last three years. 
and it is a Midsummer Night's Dream. Not a Midsummer's Night Dream, which I want to slap somebody every time I hear them pronounce it that way. A Midsummer Night's Dream, the apostrophe S after the word night. I wrote Midsummer, exotic and episodic. So, I don't know, why don't you tell us just a little bit about this play? Not necessarily a summary, but something that sits with you about this play to start off. Sure, well, uh, this is definitely Shakespeare's most produced play by far, and, and there's a reason for it. You have three groups of characters. You have the lovers, you have the fairies, and you have the mechanicals. And the great thing about this play, as opposed to some of his other more famous plays, Hamlet, Richard III, Henry V, is that all three of these groups share about the same amount of stage time. So a lot of high schools and younger uh uh, theaters with younger actors tend to do this play because you don't have to rely on one Hamlet or one right. Henry V. Sure. Everybody kind of has their share. Everybody has an equal amount of lines. Um, but then there's the really talented standout actor that you can cast as Puck to do. Sure, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Uh, Puck is a standout. Bottom is a standout. I guess they um, all really are. I hadn't really thought about it in that sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's. Some, I mean, yeah. If you, in the mechanicals world, um, there's Peter Quince and Bottom. Those are the only two that really speak until the play within a play. But there's, you know, Snug the Joiner, Snout, um, <laughs> Starveling, who have like two or three lines in each scene, but are amazing characters. And really, I, I love the mechanicals. I've been a part of that world actually each time I've done it. So <laughs> uh, my appreciation for the mechanicals is definitely more than with the lovers because Kyle, I'm not a young lover. Mm anymore i'm playing the smallest violin in the world for mike Awkward. right now it's hard to see Silent. why don't you tell us a little bit about the lovers uh well the lovers uh you have lysander and hermia who are in love and then there's demetrius who is also in love with hermia uh and hermia and lysander uh can't be together because hermia's father wants her to marry demetrius so they plan to run away um they tell Helena of this. Helena loves Demetrius, who does not love her back. And she also plans to... She plans to tell Demetrius that they're going to run away so that he runs after them and then she runs after him. So it all... All of it leads up to uh, Puck in the fairy world putting the love juice of a flower on uh, Lysander's eyes and both boys end up falling in love with Helena. He does the same to Demetrius. So both boys who used to fall in love, who were in love with Hermia, are now in love with Helena. And all hell breaks loose in the lover's quarrel. So then what is, I guess, the most fascinating part about the, the lover's plot? Because to me right now, like re-listening to it again, and it, I, I know Midsummer, but it's not one of the plays I'm most familiar with. Sure. It sounds like the most interesting part in the play would be when we discover that the lover's no longer love Helena, but love Hermia. Yeah, right? uh, other way. Uh, no Hermia, longer love, love Hermia, Helena. love Helena. Yes. The, the most interesting thing about the lovers is that, so Puck puts the love juice on Lysander and Demetrius's eyes, and then later takes the love juice off of Lysander's eyes, so that Lysander and Hermia love each other, and Demetrius is now in love with Helena, who loved him all along. So the really mm. interesting thing is that after all of this is said and done in a Midsummer Night's Dream, they don't know if it really happened. Really, Demetrius is still under this spell <laughs> like, and will be for the rest of his life <laughs> with somebody that he didn't love. But because Oberon was like, oh, that sweet lady is in love with a disdainful youth, make him love her. <laughs> and now he has to for the rest of his life. I always thought that's really weird. <laughs> you know, that is interesting. And then, then after all that like messing around, the play... I mean, it brings it to a resolution, right? Mm -hmm. There's no longer any quarreling over one woman, but, like, Demetrius is still just kind of, like, screwed. He's still under the spell, and he will be for the rest of his life. Hopefully it doesn't wear off, and he wakes up one morning and was like, what the... Uh, 50 years later. What the hell am I? Why am I... <laughs> nice, I, got, I caught the little pun there. Thank you. Um, uh, so, the fascinating thing to me about the the flower is that it's, it's said to be, like... A flower that had been shot by Cupid's arrow. Yes. Yes, and had turned purple or, or something. So literally, this is this is their version of, of Cupid. And when Cupid shoots an arrow at someone, does it have a permanent effect on them? 
Does Cupid have to remove the arrow later? I don't know. I don't know how Cupid lore goes. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> All I know is that Oberon saw Cupid shoot this arrow. He uh, marked where it lied, and then he told Puck to go get it. Which we actually... So the production I just did. I just finished up uh, touring A Midsummer Night's Dream with five other actors. There were only six of us uh, to Texas area high schools and communities. Uh, and we put this play on. And I played Oberon, but we caught it so much mm. the what if it's done without cutting any lines midsummer's like two hours and 50 minutes almost three hours okay. we did a 55 minute version of it yeah that's short so the scene where oberon has this lovely lovely uh soliloquy about uh mark die where the bolt of cupid fell cut all that it just goes wow. puck fetch me that flower the herb i showed thee once <laughs> <laughs> that's all it was <laughs> wow yeah yeah. So it doesn't have that explanation about Cupid's arrow, no. but it is just we we understand that it's a magical flower. It's a magical and in flower. In a fifty-five minute production, yeah, which is can... what brings the fantastical into this play, which I guess would be a good segue into talking about the fairies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, the. Um... You By know, the way, I'm sure our former professor Robert Chimko could tell us loads about Cupid oh, right now. If you really yes. wanted to know, of course he would. Um, so yeah, so the fairies. Um, so Shakespeare liked to, to delve into the supernatural a lot, obviously of the witches and mackers and uh, ghosts coming back to warn and curse and all those other things. So in Midsummer Night's Dreams, we have the fairies, which are these supernatural creatures. Um, you have the fairy king, Oberon, and you have the fairy queen, Titania. Mm -hmm. Now these two are in a fierce war with each other right now. Because, and this is what is so hard to portray in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Here's why the fairy world is insane. Titania has taken, has stolen a boy from an Indian king and kept him as her changeling child. Oberon wants that baby boy to be with him so that I think the line is they can trace the forests wild. So uh, Oberon, Oberon wants this baby boy. and Titania doesn't want to give it to him. And because of that, they are in this huge, huge battle um, and just are absolutely hating each other. So Oberon <laughs> decides to have Puck get the, the flower and anoint Titania's eyes so that when she wakes, she will instantly fall in love with the next thing that she sees. This is his way of saying, F*** you, Tita. Oh, can I swear? I don't even know. Yeah, cut it. I'll bleep it. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this is his way of saying, uh, you know, I'll get you to do what I want by putting this spell on you and then getting the child from you while you're in love with this other thing. So he's making his wife go have sex with somebody else so he can get the child. Basically, that's what it comes down to. So little does he know that in the moment, Puck will then do some mischief and turn one of the mechanicals bottom into a, an ass, a donkey, and that's who she'll end up falling in love with. Mm -hmm. So Puck comes in and tells Oberon that this has happened. And Oberon says, this falls out better than I could devise. <laughs> right. The fact that she has uh, awaked and fallen in love, straightway loved an ass is Puck's line. Um, so uh, under the spell, Oberon ends up getting the boy. And then he releases her from the spell, and all is well. She instantly forgives him. It's the it's the weirdest thing. But, yeah. <laughs> Deus ex machina type thing. <laughs> yeah, Shakespeare exactly. seems to use it all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, so we have the lovers, you know, who have this weird. I, I guess we're playing with almost teenage hormones affected mm -hmm. by fairy drugs, sure. basically. And then we have the fairies who have this like giant mystical, magical like yes. battle going between them. Where do the mechanicals come in in all of this? <laughs> the mechanicals are the everyday humdrum people, I guess. <laughs> uh, the rude mechanicals, as they're called. They are um, honest men of Athens who want to put on a play for uh, Duke Theseus on his wedding day. And it's basically, um, when I was in the production with Virginia Shakes, uh, our director told us it's basically like these guys are auditioning to be on American Idol. <laughs> they are trying to put on this play. None of them are actors. None of them have been in the theater before. Uh, maybe Bottom, I guess, because he's so adamant that he could play all the parts and like is the best thing to ever come into, you know, 
the acting world. <laughs> He's not <laughs> at all. Um, at least that's the way I played him. Um, but yeah, so so it's like these guys are hoping to be the entertainment on Duke Theseus's wedding night. Uh, and if all goes well, then they're going to be set for life. So that's basically their motivation. So they end up, uh, Peter Quince, who's kind of the director, the leader of this group, um, tells them all they're going to do the play of Pyramus and Thisbe, which is basically the plot of Romeo and Juliet, pretty much. And so... Classy Shakespeare yeah, referencing it, it, Yeah, it's pretty much... I mean, two lovers uh, can't be together, Um so they end up wanting to. Uh, <laughs> so they end up getting together in a tomb, but uh, Pyramus thinks that she is dead, so he kills himself, and then she comes in and thinks he's asleep, but realizes he's dead, so then she kills him herself. Yeah. Interesting um, to note, by the way, that Romeo and Juliet and Midsummer Night's Dream were supposedly written. Uh, or at least produced for the first time in the same year, Midsummer Night's Dream, right after Romeo and Juliet in the canon. <laughs> I did so. not know that before right now, but that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, funny. So Shakespeare would be like, hey, if you liked or didn't see Romeo and Juliet, here's a funnier, crappier version of it. Go see the good one. Um, so yeah, so they end up uh, rehearsing in the woods. All the groups end up going to the woods. Mechanicals first rehearse in the woods. Bottom turns into a donkey, and uh, yeah, ends up with Titania, and then they end up doing the sh the play within a play at the end. So it's interesting to me. We have an element of like the gods. They're not gods, but the fairies. So we sure. have a magical element. Mm -hmm. We have an element of the court and the lovers, and we have an element of the working class or the blue collar guys in yep. the mechanicals yep. and Shakespeare, I guess, decides to, to throw them all in one play. And it's interesting. I was going to ask at the beginning of the podcast, I had um, written down to ask what ties all these uh, characters together. Like why put them in one play? And I'm starting to wonder if it's sort of, sort of a social commentary of some kind, you know, trying to put the working class and the court and the fairies into the same thing. But I don't know. What do you think? No, I, I totally agree. I think he was writing for his crowds because the mechanicals, yeah, represent the groundlings. Uh, the lovers represent the court, which would be up in the higher seats. And then you have the fairies who would be the kings and queens who would come to see his sure. show. So yeah. every group is represented in one play. Um, yeah, I think that's totally part of his reasoning. It's interesting. I mean, we could speculate wildly for hours on this i guess but it, it is an interesting thing to to think about yeah um two characters i want to talk about sure. first i'll start with with bottom since you played him before um i wrote bottom shakespeare's toughest clown shakespeare i guess is bottom is considered to be one of the more difficult characters to play in shakespeare's comedies and i want to know why you think that is and what you did to solve it who um yeah bottom bottom is tough because he thinks he is an expert in all things acting, but you can't play him that way, or else there's no comedy in it. So there's uh, I uh, I've played him twice. I just did it on the road with Texas Shakes, the Texas Shakespeare Festival Roadshow, and I did it over the summer. This past summer, uh, we did kind of a a production in the style of Backroom Shakespeare Project, which is in Chicago, where. You basically do Shakespeare and drink at the same time. Mm. It was a lot of Sounds fun. Sounds like my kind of Shakespeare. Yeah, it was great. Um, and I, uh, my solution for it was to be absolutely over the top when he's acting. I, I employed a lot of the terrible acting styles that I've seen. Um, <laughs> it just, you know, overemphasis with gesturing and like really emphasizing questions and with an up glide. And, and my favorite element that I added to it when I just did it on the road was <laughs> with the play within a play when he comes out as Pyramus, I pretended that every single person in the audience was like his mother and he was a fourth grader on stage so he was just <laughs> like <laughs> so i employed like fourth grade acting styles and always trying to get my mother's approval <laughs> no. out in the audience and maybe waving a couple times <laughs> and like gesture like look how cool my outfit is look at this sword that i have like so, so and funny. it's especially we, we perform for a lot of uh, high schools they just they absolutely love that mm. um but he 
man, he's got malprops all over the place. Um, sure. Uh, his his uh, the really tough thing is whether or not he does know what has happened to him. Um, and when I was in Virg- when I did Virginia Shakes, they they had this very fun moment um, between. All right, I have to break this down. So Hippolyta, there's Hippolyta and Theseus, the Duke, and who he's going to marry, the Duchess. Um, they were they, they doubled as Titania and Oberon. Mm-hmm. So in the play within a play, uh, Bottom ended up braying, laughing, um, and Titania. Well, Hippolyta and he both kind of for a second, like acknowledged the fact that maybe something had happened between them. It was very, okay. very weird. But he comes out and he says after uh, he's t- transformed back into a man that, you know, I have had a most rare vision. I have had a dream past the wit of man to say what dream it was. So he thinks it's a dream, but then to play whether or not he actually realizes what happened. Because he goes through the events that happened. And um, the the way I played it is that um, some people make, uh, uh, I don't know if I can say it's a joke out of... You know, uh, me thought I had, but I was doing it for high school, so I can't do a joke, (laughs) you know, so I just, I referenced where I came out of and was, you know, doing the no pants dance with, uh, Titania and just referenced that, oh, I had somebody that was really hot and that was awesome. Basically a sex dream. That's what I turned it into. Okay. You know, um, so you're saying that when you say what has happened to him, you mean the turning into a donkey? Yes. And okay. Yes. Turning into an ass. Let's yeah. just say. Um, and the the big th- decision that you made was to sort of not really acknowledge that he knew that it was real, but that it was a sex dream. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. But the the thing about that is that the mechanic, the other mechanicals, all know that it happened for real because he sure. comes out and scares the crap out of them and they all <laughs> run away because he is transformed into an ass but um when he comes back to meet them the only thing he says is uh uh masters i am to discourse wonders and they all go like what finally tell us what happened and all he says is but if i tell you i am no true athenian <laughs> so he just instantly cuts it off right there so we never know if he acknowledges that it was a real thing that actually happened Interesting. Yeah. I guess that's... Yeah, it's a polarizing choice mm-hmm. as an actor. Uh, the, the other character I wanted to talk about is Puck. I wrote Puck the Typeless Fairy. And I wrote that because it seems that no matter where you go, Puck can... Not is always different, but has a range, a wide range of different um, actors playing him or her. Mm-hmm. You know, we have males and females. We have six foot four guys. We have... You know, five foot one guys or girls. We have fat people. We have skinny people. We have athletic people. It. Uh, I feel like a very not the defining aspect, but one of the defining aspects of every production is how do you cast Puck, and what kind of effect do you think Puck has on the play in that aspect? Uh, yeah. I mean, you can go any direction with it. I think the main quality that an actor has to possess is uh, a sense of mischief Hmm. because he does Oberon did not tell him to turn one of the mechanicals into an ass he just did it on his own because he (laughs) thought it'd be kind of fun Um, Puck's a (laughs) he just likes to have fun he likes to be mischievous so um, yeah the, the actors that have played it in the three productions I was in each one of them had that kind of um fun mischievous uh um daring quality to them uh all three were very very different actors definitely all three were men i have seen a a female puck and she was fantastic i forget where that was um but yeah they all have to kind of have that glint in their eye of oh i'm gonna i'm gonna mess up i'm I'm gonna mess around with people (laughs) (laughs) um I think that the major relationship for Puck uh, when people are casting him is the relationship between Puck and Oberon because Oberon does have to have um, a presence, a, presence yeah. a status about him that Puck does um, bow down to uh, or adhere to. Um, so I think is depending on who your Oberon is, you can then determine who your Puck is. But again, it's 
there's no set description of who yeah. he has to be, and that's well, what and makes it such a great. There's part. still no physical sort of element to that then either, because all, all you're saying is that Oberon has to have some sort of presence and some sort of status sure. over Puck. And yeah. If Puck is, let's say, Puck was played by our six foot four friend from graduate school, Crash Buis, <laughs> right? He could still be a Puck that's. You know, meek and and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Submissive. Yeah. To to Oberon, as long as Oberon is, if Oberon's, you know, five foot two, totally. as long as Oberon's very strong presence, then then that relationship still works. So totally. the, the physical aspect of a puck can be any race, any gender, yeah. any size. Yeah. The uh, the show I just did with uh, Texas Shakespeare Roadshow, I played Oberon too, and our puck was uh, uh, he was the same height as me. Um, now I, I'm six foot. I'm a big guy. I'm 250 pounds. So he's the same height as me, and he was way more athletic and like jacked than I am. But we had this fun relationship of where I had the power, mm-hmm. and he would immediately recognize it. Sometimes forget about it, but then the fun was when he did remember it, and we we had a lot of play back and forth. So as long as yeah, Oberon and Puck have that, Puck can be anybody. Yeah, yeah. and it's just up to the actors to create that relationship. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty cool. Exactly. Um, all right, to wrap up the Midsummer section of this podcast, what is your favorite scene in the play? Oh my gosh, the, the play within a play. <laughs> I'm such a ham, so <laughs> when I just did it for high school students, I just went all out, and it was, I, I was out of breath by the end of it. We had to do a dance at the end of it and sing, and I could barely sing because I was so out of breath. When I, I died the most epic death you have ever seen <laughs> there there are five times that, <laughs> that he says die and we cut the second part where he says now am i dead now am i flood so it's just now die 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 i can't i put so many vowels into die <laughs> I, think, I think when i stab myself i went now die die and just over and over, each one higher and higher and higher until the last one is just a very dramatic whisper. And I die, <laughs> die, die. die. Um, so just being able to f- go all out and not have to worry about like being how you're being received, how yeah. you're being received, because you're supposed to be a terrible actor, and just getting to let loose is so much fun. Even uh, when I did it at Virginia Shakes, I played Peter Quince. And we added in that uh, I was on stage the whole time, or the audience could at least see me. And I ended up, I memorized every single line of the play within a play Mm -hmm. so that you could see Peter Quince (laughs) doing the play himself behind the actors. And even just that element to it of being on stage and having that freedom. I ended up just doing that in one day in rehearsal, and uh, the director loved it. It was funny. Um, so I was, so just being able to do that and I like I motioned at the same time they would motion and I would do all that and it's just the play within a play is so much fun awesome it's amazing um, so the next segment I'm going to move on to is actually related to Midsummer Night Stream it's called Tyrant Producer this is one that I've included in the past few podcasts and I really like it okay and the premise is that a tyrant producer has given you three million dollars to direct a production of Midsummer Night Stream and he has one catch. You have to do the production with his crazy idea. And in this case, the tyrant producer's crazy idea is that everybody in a Midsummer Night's Dream is on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to make it work because you have to put your name on this production. It's being performed at a reputable theater. And you do not get the $3 million until you make it work. They all have to be on... Every character has to be on some kind of drug. Every character has to be on some kind of drug oh my gosh uh well i guess i'd i'd have to assign a drug to each group Mm -hmm. right sure so um i'd say the lovers are on coke i guess because they're all fast and quick and you know uh i was thinking molly or ecstasy molly or ecstasy could work too but they just they escalate so quickly fighting each other that i think they have to have that uh, yeah, 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 totally. The, um, the rage in the eyes. Yeah, uh, I guess the mechanicals would smoke pot. <laughs> I don't. I get, they're kind of laid back, and other than Bottom, who goes all out, um, and then yeah, let's let's put the fairies on uh, on acid or something. Yeah, you know, sure. they're in the fairy world. 
Um, and I have three million dollars to do it. Oh yeah, yeah. You get you get three million dollars for doing this. So, but you have to put it on stage in front of everybody and have your name attached. All right. Well, so. I I would build an entire forest on stage. Why the hell not? No, you know, sure. I've uh, I've performed it uh, uh, with no set. Uh, mm-hmm. I've performed it with just uh, minimal set, and I've performed it with you know the, the full production of Virginia Shakes, which had you know forested elements. But build an awesome freaking forest. That yeah. would be amazing. Um, so, yeah, put a million into that. Why not? <laughs> um, another million divided up among the actors so that they can finally be paid what they're worth. <laughs> um, <laughs> and set and crew. Everybody needs to get paid what they're worth. No, um, yeah. And then I just I would put so many technical elements into it why mm-hmm. the hell not especially if they're on if there was a way that we could show technically the drugs that they're on like when they're in the scene so sure, yeah. so when the lovers are on stage and they're on coke and they're going really fast you know it's technical elements that are that are just whizzing by us and lights that are you know all that sure, kind of yeah, stuff yeah. and then when the mechanicals come on it's way more laid back man <laughs> you know uh I'm no lighting expert, but you know, cooler colors for the mechanicals, and uh, and then just go all out acid trip technically when the fairies come into the world. Crazy <laughs> I think that would be awesome. mirrors yeah. and like just make light. it, make it. I would have to make it an experience that the audience goer would feel like they had just taken the taken drug. drugs <laughs> while they were watching that. It's kind of like a Cirque du Soleil show, I guess, you know, where you just can't believe what you're seeing. And yeah, I love it. That's my proposal. Awesome. <laughs> well, next segment we're going to move on to is Shakespeare. I forget what I used to call it on the old podcast. Quiz, trivia, questionnaire. Okay. So basically... What I have done is, in diligent research, I have come up with six different quotes from six different Shakespearean characters, and these quotes are something that they say about their lover, either after seeing them for the first time or speaking to them for the first time. Um, it is like an, an almost a first impression of their lover, a first question that they ask. Okay. Right? Um, and I've written a list so that Michael has multiple choice because some of these are really obscure and would be difficult to do oh without gosh. the list. So <laughs> the first one I'm going to, to tell you... I, if, well, if this game were to have a name, what would it be? Um, match the lover. Match yeah. the lover to the quote. I don't know. Something more creative. I, I have nothing. We've run out of creativity. I'm looking at this list of over. names and I'm scared. So okay. the first one is actually pretty easy. It's... Oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright. It seems she hangs upon the cheek of night like a rich jewel in an Ethiop's ear. Beauty too rich for use, for earth too dear. Romeo? That is Romeo. Oh my god, okay. What he says about Juliet after seeing her in the ballroom for the first time in Act 1, Scene 5. Number two is, is she not a modest young lady? Claudia. That is Claudio. Yeah. Claudio's first impression of hero whispered to Benedict. The next one is now by the world. It is a lusty wench. I love her ten times more than e'er I did. Petruchio. That is Petruchio. Three for three. All right. <laughs> the next one, number four, is nay, my collar is ended. She is a most sweet lady. Ah. Uh... You get one pass. You can come back to it later. Uh, yeah, I'll come back to that one. All right. Number five. I think I know, but yeah, let me come back to it. Process of elimination. Yeah. So, uh, number five. Or else the lady's mad. Yet if twere so, she could not sway her house, command her followers, take and give back affairs and their dispatch with such a smooth, discreet, and stable bearing as I perceive she does. Sebastian. That is Sebastian. Yeah. After seeing or after spending time with Olivia for the first time, we assume that maybe they just did the deed. Um, number six, but soft, who wafts us yonder? Longaville. 
No. Oh, no, so close. These two, I don't know that one. That well. is Antipholus of, of Syracuse. And the reason I picked this one is because of the word wafts. Wafts. <laughs> this is when he sees Adriana and Luciana for the first time. But soft who wafts us yonder. I had a joke on tour that that was my favorite action to play. Waft. waft. To waft. To waft. <laughs> my new favorite action is to mollycoddle. <laughs> to mollycoddle. I like that. Uh, we are wordsmiths. Yes. We are a slave of our learning environment. So then, nay, my collar is ended. She is a most sweet lady is Longville. That is Longville, yep. Right. From, for those who do not know, from Love's Labor's, Labor's Lost. Lost. And Longville is, is not the most prominent character in that show, no. so I kind of was digging deep for this one at the last minute. But a little bit of background here. So after I got my brand new laptop today, um, I basically uh, said to Mike, hey, you know what? Just so I can feel less buyer's remorse, let's just do a podcast tonight so I can make use of it right away. And Mike was like, okay. So he cooks food, and I wrote down a bunch <laughs> of stuff and did like you know, created an outline for a little while and we just decided to do this spontaneously because we're spontaneous. We are. Spontaneous actors. So, the next segment is probably the geekiest thing I do and it is called Shakespearean Text Database. And basically what it is is, so Open Source Shakespeare is a wonderful, wonderful resource uh, for Shakespearean text statistics. They have in their database all of the text of every Shakespeare play. And what you do when you can go to advanced, you go to advanced searches, you can search by character name, by play name, by genre, comedy, history, tragedy, sonnet. You can search by date range. You can sort by the name of the work. You can look for key words and phrases. Um, you can have them show the line text. You can highlight keywords within different uh, blocks of text. And it searches all every word Shakespeare ever wrote. Um, so basically what I do with this is I like to find out geeky little, st little text statistics. Very, very dangerous two words to say next to each other. Text statistics. Yes. Whew. Yes, got to work on that. <laughs> um, so... Today, I decided it would be fun to see how Shakespeare's writing evolved over the course of his career. Um, like how, like what kind of words he used in the beginning of his career as opposed to the end. I thought this would be really interesting. This should tell you something about me. And what I did was I divided the plays up into three eras, right? So the first one is, I believe it was 1589 to 1596 that's Shakespeare's first 12 plays uh, then from 97 to 1602 and that's Shakespeare's next 12 plays and then Shakespeare's final 12 plays going all the way up to 1612 uh, and this is a little loosely done because uh, some of the plays were said like span multiple years and I don't know exactly how the the text database sorts them. But I have here a list of words that I thought might pop up in multiple Shakespeare plays, such as love, hate, fight, happy, marry, eat, kill. And I have how many times they appeared in each era of Shakespeare's work. So the first question I want to ask you, Mike, after that giant tirade of information, is what would you expect from something like this overall <clears throat> knowing what you know about Shakespeare uh well he was pretty uh, such an awful word but I can't think of a different one routine I guess in the early part of his career he, he had a formula and that's what he followed mm -hmm. um and then towards the latter part of his life he really started to stretch the boundaries of of what he did on stage you know kind of ending with the tempest which is just a fantastical mm -hmm. play. Um, so uh, I I don't know. I'm just curious. I looked through the three sections you were talking about because I, I had never really intently looked at uh, um, the order that the plays were written in. So for the first twelve, it includes plays like Two Gentlemen of Verona, Taming, The Henry Sixes, Titus, uh, Richard the Third, 
Comedy of Errors and Love Labors Lost. Right? To 96? Mm. Yep. Um, oh, Romeo and Juliet, Midsummer, and Richard II. So, a lot of those, uh, you don't really have... You def- Well, you have more histories, I guess, than anything. Um, so, War, I assume, would be a big one in the early part of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what else did you have? You know, so, actually, you bring up an interesting point... The fact, and I hadn't thought about it this way, but Shakespeare does seem to have been fairly routine in the first part of his career, um, which actually the data we just I looked up shows proves um, because he seems to have used wor- these key words: love, hate, fight, happy, sad, almost all of them more times in the first twelve plays. And who knows, maybe that's because they're longer, but he used these words more times in the first 12 plays than he did in the second 12 Mm -hmm. plays, almost exclusively. There's actually only one word on my list that he used more times in his second era than his first era, and that's the word Mary, M-A-R-R-Y, used 180 times in the second era against only 127 times in the first era. Words like love go from 921 to 757. Fight goes from 135 to 102. Live goes from 455 to 365. They almost all seem to go down. And maybe he was following a formula. Maybe these are key words and he started to expand his vocabulary. Well, totally. Because we all know that Shakespeare invented so So many many words. words. So in the early part of his career, he, he had to use all of these words because he hadn't yet invented... Um, words to replace them. Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, instances of these words show up just as many times, but he coined his own phrase and how to say it. So maybe that's why, too. Um, Yeah. Interesting thing about Mary, though, is that, yes, we all think of M-A-R-R-Y as two people, you know, Mm -hmm. betrothed, getting married. But Shakespeare also uses it as a, a, uh, um, I don't know what the word for it would be, uh, placeholder i guess uh i'm you know going over my lines for uh casca and he says all the time um to start a line uh, mary before he fell um so he uses it there i mary wast uh um you know did he did he turn away the crown three times i mary he did um so it's just a kind of placeholder as well so it's not always people getting married yeah i wonder what the word for that in the English is. language yeah. would be. It's got to have some crazy fancy word, yeah. right? Um, but yes, I, I get what you mean by that. And it's an interesting thing that I actually overlooked while I was while I was searching it. And that actually tells me a little bit more about it. Um, the, the, the more telling information about these eras and these word usages is almost all of them decrease in usage mm-hmm. between the first and the second, right? As I already said. And, you know, by varying percentages, like some go from, I guess, 32 to 12, which seems like a huge drop, and some only go from, um, let's say, uh, 99 to 83. Laugh goes from 99 to 83, so that's not as big of a, a percentage of a decrease. But between the second and third eras, we can learn more information. For example... Hate goes from 138 uses in the first era to 62 in the second, back up to 119 in the third era. And what do you think that tells us? Well, in the third era, I'm just looking at the plays here. Uh, we have uh, Measure for Measure, Othello, All's Well That Ends Well, King Lear, Mackers, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, Coriolanus, Cymbeline Tempest, Henry VIII. But those are some strong tragedies in mm-hmm. that last group. Is Ham? No, it's sixteen oh one. Hamlet is sixteen oh one. So yeah, it, it was a darker part of his life, especially man, sixteen oh two to sixteen oh eight, especially is like fellow yeah. dark, dark times. Antony and Cleopatra, Coriolanus. Even Pericles. Measure for measure, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah that hilarious comedy. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a kind of darker time, so yeah. Well, and a lot of the data here actually supports that. Um, like, if you had to guess, do you think war would go up or down from second to third? 
the second era to the third era. Yeah, you'd think it... It goes up. Goes it, up, yeah. You know, minimally, but it does go up. Do you, What would you say about kill? Would you think it would go up or down? Well, knowing the tragedy, let's say go up. And it does. Yeah. And also, um, let's see what else supports this. Cry goes from 76 to 112. Death goes from 218 to 258. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we have words like study going down. We have... Um, Laugh, going, Laugh down. going down. We have love going down. Um, By almost 100. Yeah. Significant margin. Um, woo goes down from 100 to 81. But uh, the important thing is a lot more we're eating. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. In the third part. <laughs> so the, the, I picked eat. And now I'm realizing that it was probably a poor word to pick because I forgot to take off a filter in open source Shakespeare, and this is very important. You can search for all or part of the keyword, and you can search for the exact keyword. Oh, okay. So when I was searching for eat, which goes from 1,232 to 1,099, back up to 1,203, I was probably also getting instances of meat, feature, oh, um, yeah, creature, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. beat. Because that one, that's definitely... The- Eat has the highest numbers. Yeah, yeah. on this list, and that's so, because I, I messed it up. I, I could probably search through right now, but it, eh, yeah, we don't need right. to do that. Eat's yeah. not that important of a word. It's not really a telling word about <laughs> genres or Shakespeare and his mood. Yeah, um, but an interesting finding, and it does correlate with the the type of plays that are mm-hmm. on in the third era. Well. That is about all the time we have, um, just because I want to get to bed at a reasonable hour. And so, in closing, I will ask you, Mike, if there is anything you would like to talk about, and if you would like to give us a little bit more information about Titan Theatre Company's production of Julius Caesar. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So, yeah, I'm a part of, very happy to be a part of Titan Theatre Company's production of Julius Caesar. Uh, We start rehearsals uh, in two days, and we go up, uh, first show is on March 25th, and we go through April 10th. Uh, tickets are already selling out, but if you use uh, the coupon code TITAN15, you will get uh, cheaper tickets. So it's uh, a really fantastic cast that uh, Titan has assembled to do this show, and I'm, I'm really honored to be a part of it. So That's awesome. And Titan Theater Company is actually founded by uh, two members of our let's let's say academic lineage because they didn't come directly from the university of houston but they they were also trained by uh our professor jack young uh at a different university ohio university Uh i believe was yeah um so um the artistic director i guess lenny lenny banavez who was actually on pith and moment uh in, in an earlier episode to talk about othello um will be involved in the... He's playing Cassius. He's playing Cassius. Yes. Did not know that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Um, I personally can't wait to see the production. If you are in the New York and, more specifically, Queens area during that time, mm-hmm. please make an effort to go out and see the production. Queens Theater. Queens Theater. Yep. Right. Uh, one stop before City Field, I believe, on the 7th. Same stop, I think. Same stop. Yeah. So just go after the Mets game one day. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there you go. April 6th, the opening, go to the opening afternoon of the Mets game and then go straight and see a Shakespeare production. There, there you go. Sounds like a great day to me. Um, so for myself, my name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City. You can get in touch with me by sending me an email to nyshakesguy at gmail.com with any listener questions. You can also find me at on Facebook, NY Shakes Guy, Twitter, at NY Shakes Guy, Instagram, at NY Shakes Guy, and on YouTube, my channel is NY Shakes Guy. All pretty easy to follow. Um, so thank you so much for listening, everyone, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.